Good morning, Redeemer. Good to see everyone. Getting together with my lawyer this week. We're going to talk about my will. I hate to do that. Kind of weird, you know. They say you're supposed to. Do you have a will? You have your last will and testament? I know, it's hard to do, isn't it? Hard to put it together. It's important, I think, just legally, but... Because of that, I was on the internet this past week. I was looking at different things and somehow came across all kinds of quotes about people's last words. You know, famous people, infamous people, the kind of the last thing they said before they expired. And there's whole books about these things. I didn't realize this. And I also noticed there's whole books and whole blog pages full of old tombstones. Have you seen these things? Where people write things, some of them are weird some of them are poignant some are funny here's a few of them here lies a miser who lived for himself who cared for nothing but gathering wealth now where he is and how he fares nobody knows and nobody cares i don't think he wrote that i think someone else wrote that maybe someone who didn't inherit anything from the miser here's another one here lies an atheist he's all dressed up with no place to go Actually, that's not true. I, you know, and now as I read it, that's actually not, not true. He, there is a place. How about this one? Behold and see as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon will be. Prepare for death and follow me. <laughs> Whoa. I don't know what you want your last words to be. We're looking at a passage today that were Paul's final words face-to-face to the Ephesians. It's his last will and testimony to them. So we expect his words to be important. And not only that, they're important because he loved the Ephesians. They were dear to Paul. He'd lived with them for years. He brought the gospel to them. He'd seen the church planted and grow. He gave of himself for the church. He worked for their spiritual health. He wrote them letters. The letter... The letter, the epistle to the Ephesians is one of the most beloved epistles in the Bible. He sent his own people to minister them, including Timothy. So Timothy was the guy Paul sent to the Ephesians to be their pastor. Dave's speaking to us out of Timothy over the next number of weeks. And and so we get to see more about Timothy and his ministry among the Ephesians. Paul loved the Ephesians. And you know, those of us who help plant Redeemer know how that feels. We, we love you. Well, we pick up the story in Acts 20, about seven, uh, verse 17. Uh, Luke has recorded previously that Paul is in a rush to get to Jerusalem. We don't know why that was important. He wants to get there for the Feast of Pentecost. But it means that Paul doesn't have time to get to uh, Ephesus. He, he doesn't have time to make the overland trip about 30 miles to get to Ephesus. So he calls to the elders. He sends a runner up to Ephesus and tells the elders to come meet him in Miletus where he had stayed at the port. So while his ship is docked in Miletus, he speaks to the Ephesian elders. The, the Ephesian elders have to travel a long way, about 30 miles overland 
We see that happen in verse 17 and 18. And when they arrive, Paul, as you would expect, has a sermon prepared. Now, it's interesting because this is a precious sermon to us in the Scriptures. Most of Paul's sermons were to non-Christians. This is one of the few and rare sermons to Christians, and certainly the longest, and more specifically to elders. So we can learn a lot from this particular speech. So let's look carefully at the passage. I want to look at it in three sections. Paul reminds the elders of his past with them. That's verses 17 through 21. Secondly, the second section we're going to look at is Paul tells them what's coming in the future, what's coming down the road in verses 22 through 27. And then Paul instructs them on what to do about the coming hard times of the church, or put it another way, what to do when the future becomes the hard reality of the here and now. That's verses 28 through 38. Keep your finger on the passage in the bulletin or in your Bible because we're going to look at each of these verses. Now notice from Miletus, he sent to the Ephesian elders, we said that in verse 17, and when they came to him, this is what he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's listing here what was important about his time with them. And he does so, he instructs us today about what's important in church leadership, about church membership. Three things that I, w- I want to look at in this section and times past, his times living with the Ephesians. He lived among them, right off. He says he ministered in homes in verse 18, again in verse 20. There's no TV preacher here. The problem with TV, you understand, is that TV can make a person look perfect, but they're, they're apart. They don't live in your home. They don't live with you. So you can't, you can't see their life. You don't know if their life is authentic or not. I suppose some TV preachers are authentic. Some aren't. But the point is, Paul lived with people who saw his life as real and authentic. He taught in their homes. He taught publicly. I'm Just by the way, parenthetically, they rented a place just like Redeemer called the Hall of Tyrannus. And, and that's where Paul spoke from week to week. So it's, it's nice to know there's nothing, nothing wrong with a church building, but... There's actually a biblical precedent for what we do here at J.W. Marriott. We just rent a place and we meet here. There's nothing spiritual about a place. What was spiritual was that Paul lived with the people. And he's contrasting himself with those who set themselves up as ruler or potentate or boss. Paul wasn't distant or removed or too good for anybody. He didn't think there were groups that were too small to meet with. Everyone was important. Paul saw the church not as business, not as a job, but as family. It's true for good ministry for us today, too. We want to be where the people are. No small group is unimportant. The elders at Redeemer are not bosses, neither are the staff. We, we care for people. We long to live among people. We long for you to know our lives. 
You know, you, you must be very careful when you look at church not to incorporate ideas of business into church. Kind of take business models and apply them to church. It's easy to do. It's natural to do that. So I understand why people do it. But, but it's not the model that you should have in your head about the way the church should look. Actually, to apply business models to church is the death of the church. We want biblical principles about church, not business principles. So, for example, when we gather together in members' meetings, it's not as shareholders getting together to see how their investments are doing in a company. That's, that's not the point. The point is not to sit with arms folded making sure that the elders are making good business decisions. No, it's about family, seeing how we can be better members of the family of faith and call others to be better family members. For staff and for elders, we need to know what's going on in people's lives. So, you know, when I commend this to you as a family. In our family, it was always, how was your day at school? Now, I had boys, and they would say monosyllable grunts. You know, mm-hmm, good, you know, that kind of thing. And we live right next to Brian Park's four daughters. And occasionally we have meals together. And, uh, and Brian would say, girls, how was your day in school today? And Hannah would take a half an hour. And I would learn more about my boys at their same school in that half hour than I had in a week with my children. So I, I understand that we, we don't all do this. But I, we... We want you to share your lives with us just as we want our children to share their lives with us. We want to know what's going on in your life. You need to talk to us. Talk to the elders. The elders need to know what's going on. Elders need to know who the flock is. That's why we have membership. We can't attend to the needs of everyone who wanders through Dubai, every Christian that shows up in our church. We call for people to join, to be a part of a covenanted fellowship together, a family. So if you're a born-again, baptized follower of Jesus, you should be a member of a church. We'd love for you to be a member of our church, but we want you to be a member more than we want you to be a member of our church. Find a church that's gospel preaching and join it. Become a member and tell us what's going on in your lives, Especially, especially the big changes in your life, marriage, romance, job changes, illnesses. Be transparent with us. And we will seek, as elders, to shepherd you with what Paul says is profitable for your life. Secondly, notice Paul recounts his time with them so that he can remind them of their life together sacrificially. Paul calls attention to his sacrifice. He made emotional and physical sacrifices to do ministry among the Ephesians. So in verse 19, he says, he shed tears over the problems of the church. And if that wasn't, you know, emotional burden enough, he and his friends faced riots and threats in Ephesus as they preached against the idols. There were plots from the Jews. Paul sacrificed financially. Paul actually made tents that he sold in the public square. Tents made by his own hands to support himself and the people that traveled with him. He didn't want to be a burden on the church. We we have examples of this kind of sacrifice in our own church here at Redeemer. 
there are actually four biblical models of how church workers can be funded. They can be fully supported by the church, number one. They can be supported by others outside the church who are generous for the good of our church here. They can hold down a job and do work at a church for free. Or they could do some mixture, some combination of those three things. All are biblical. The Redeemer, we have all, all three. I mean, Philip Van Steenberg raises support to support his ministry here, but he's also supported by the church. There's others who are completely supported by the church. You have me. I'm free. (laughs) I have a day job. I do something else. It's all biblical. It's all good. It's all okay. We don't think of one as better than the other. All are biblical. Still, Paul wants to point out to the fact that he had supported himself through his own work as a point of credibility for the authentic love that he had for the church. He's highlighting that because he wants the Ephesians to remember of his own personal sacrifice. There's, a, there's another sacrifice here. It's, it's, a, it's a bit nuanced, but Paul mentions it, and it's relevant especially for us here at Redeemer. Paul attacks the overarching racism of the day, Jews and Gentiles. Paul showed no prejudice. He taught both Jews and Gentiles in verse 20 and 21. But for this he was attacked from both sides, from both Jews and Gentiles. Listen, if you want to take heat, reject racism. Move out of your own group. If you have friends with people from other races, you will be talked bad about, attacked, put down. It's natural. It's natural to stay in our own group. It's also from Satan. A mark of health in a church is friendship that crosses racial boundaries. Listen, I know how many people come and speak to us who are guest preachers, and they are astounded, as they should be, with the racial diversity of our congregation. It is a beautiful manifestation of the gospel. But do not think because of that praise that we have somehow overcome the racism that continues to form in our hearts. It is a battle that we must fight. Brothers and sisters, how easy it is to give in to racism, even in the church. Look, here's a a test of racism hiding in your in your heart if you see someone from another race you begin talking to other people and all you can see is white person white person white person or you know brown person brown person brown person or you know black person black person if that's all you see and you can't hear that person for who they are you're judging someone based on skin color not the state of their souls and to do so is sin. Of, of course we, we see that people are from other cultures, other places. We recognize that. We're not colorblind. That would, be, that would be denial. Paul spoke as our model in ways that different cultures needed to hear. But to only see people through the lenses of skin color or culture or race is sin. Now, in all this, Paul says he did not shrink back from declaring anything that 
he needed to tell them. He didn't shrink back. In other words, Paul is willing to have the tough conversations, to face the consequences of sharing the gospel in a hostile situation for the sake of the church. And it's easy, I think, in a way, to see why the Ephesian elders loved him. They were willing to be with him overland, 30 miles, to see him. They loved him because of his authentic care. You know, here's the, here's the problem. You know, if you seek to get people to love you for just by, by how you interact with them, you're going to get false friends, and your friendship will be false. But if you're a true friend, you're going to tell them the truth. You're going to tell people what they need to hear. They might not, might not like it at first. They might not like you at first. But over time, given the truth, the truth of God as God works in their lives, they will genuinely love you. Notice, thirdly, that it's not just how he lived or what he sacrificed, it was what he taught. Paul was gospel-centered. The entire motivation for living this way is not that Paul likes living out of a suitcase with Ephesian friends, homes. It's not that he liked starting riots or living in deprivation. It was about living for something bigger. It was, in verse 19, serving the Lord. And in verse 21, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. So he tells them these things. You yourselves know how I lived. And he lists out these things. Humility, tears, trials, all the plots that he faced. He didn't shrink back. And he testified both to Jews and Greeks of... What? Repentance towards God and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. All all Paul's worldview was centered, focused, driven by the gospel. I love how he states the gospel in this testimony. Repentance towards God and faith in Christ. That is, when we repent towards God, it's a recognition that we have offended. Our sin has offended a holy God. I've said it. I've said it too many times probably for you, but I love the quote from C.S. Lewis. We're not bad people that God makes good. We're rebels who lay down our arms. We cry, surrender. I'm a sinner. I've offended you. I've been your enemy. And now we repent of that affront to a holy God. And we place our faith in Christ in what Jesus has done for us, purchasing us, ransoming us from a life of death through his death and resurrection on the cross. We put our faith on him. I love Paul's beautiful summary of the Christian message by saying it's about repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul lived like it was true. That's the big thing about him. Hey, do you live as if the gospel's true? Or or do do you give it lip service? And really what you want is worldly success for you, for your kids. Be careful. The Bible says our hearts are deceitful. Now, I I think anyone who reads this passage 
might wonder or ask the question, why is Paul emphasizing the gospel? I mean, these guys are elders. Why is he talking about the gospel to elders? Don't they know it? Aren't they teaching it? Aren't they, aren't they saved? Well, yes. But first of all, Paul's life doesn't make sense unless it's true. You can't make sense of his life unless it's true. But secondly, we're constantly under assault. We're constantly tempted to forsake the gospel, to put it aside, to attend to other things. And we forget. Our, our brains are leaky. For some reason, we forget the greatest message we could possibly ever know. So it's worth repeating. Don't stop repeating. Don't stop teaching. Don't stop remembering. Don't stop reminding each other of the gospel of repentance towards God and faith in Jesus. It will reorient your life. So that's Paul's past with the Ephesians. Let's look at what the future holds, verses 22 through 27. Paul recounts how he's going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. He knows that imprisonment, afflictions await him. He talks to them about how he doesn't count his life as valuable or precious. Tells them the shocking words that they're not going to see him again. And he tells them that he's innocent of all blood because he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul knows his time in Asia is coming to an end. And he sees bad things in store for himself. Paul's desire is not to escape from those bad things, to seek ease or comfort, but to continue as he has always lived sacrificially, with no regard for his life or even greater peril, and to end well for the sake of the gospel. I think it's pretty shocking sermon illustration to uh, kind of just bring up, by the way, you're never going to see my face again. I mean, that was, that was a nice touch. In case the Ephesian elders were going to sleep in the middle of the sermon, he gives them that. It apparently really affects them. It's the thing they most are concerned about at the end. We, we, of course, don't have to wonder if Paul's prophetic words about himself were true. As they did, they wondered about it. Paul was imprisoned. He was abused. He was tortured. He was executed. And how easy it would have been for Paul to avoid it all. He could have gone ahead and taken a job there in Ephesus, right? You know, I, I know I, I wanted Timothy to be your pastor, but, you know, he's so young. And, you know, why don't I take his place, right? We could work together. We'll be co-pastors. And uh, why don't I just stay here? Do you think there were voices of reason, quote, reason, speaking to Paul that way? I bet there were. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Are you kidding? It's crazy. People are going to kill you there. Sounds like someone else we know, right? Paul is very aware, very aware, that the way he is living looks like his life is not counted as valuable. The world would think that he's throwing his life away in the eyes of the world. He understands that. But to be clear, Paul is not saying that his life has no value. In fact, I, I would say there are few lives as valuable as Paul's. No, he's saying he's not clinging to his life. It's not his first priority. In the same way, 
that he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2 about Jesus who went through these series of giving up himself sacrificially from the throne to earth, from the earth to living among us to the very cross and to our death. That's the pattern. That's the model. Paul is throwing his life away for something far more important that he can finish well for the sake of the gospel. So look at verse 24. I mean, there he goes again. There Paul goes again talking about the gospel. Of course, that's his history. Past, present, future. The repeated pattern of his life and message was to serve God by serving others with the gospel of Jesus. Ultimately, that's what makes your life and mine valuable before God. His life is forfeit for the kingdom. He wants to finish well. So he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul again reminds them of his commitment to teaching the truth of God. Number two, he's he's saying that this is what the future holds. He wants to make sure that it's understood his life is a clear statement about the gospel. He's actually actually referring to Ezekiel 33, verse 11, the faithful watchman. It's that point he's making that he's been bold with the gospel. He didn't shrink. In verse 25, it's the second time he uses the word shrink. I was just in uh, Portland, Oregon with a good friend, a pastor friend of mine named Michael. We had gone out to a store where the people knew him, knew Michael. And he began began a friendly conversation with the woman who was attending to us. And I'm thinking about other things. And um, Michael turns to me and says, Mac, his eyes light up, tell this woman what you do in Dubai. And um, I shrank. You know the feeling? I just, all of a sudden, I, I had this opportunity. I knew what he meant. He meant, tell them about the church. Tell them about Redeemer. Tell them about opportunities in the gospel. Tell her the gospel, Mac. Here's your chance. She's looking at me like this, you know. (laughs) And uh, I don't know. Well, I I run a little company. Uh, You know, I've been there 13 years. We, We love it there. It's nice. Yeah, that's it. And I went home and put my head on my pillow and said, Oh, Jesus. I am so sorry I shrank from an opportunity. Christian, there are people who are suffering under the bondage of misunderstandings, other religions, cults, and you and I have the keys to freedom, to life abundant. We must turn that key. Don't shrink. Well, Paul's reminding them about what is going to happen. That his time in Asia has come to a close. They're not going to see him again. He's reminding them of his commitment to teach the whole truth of God. And he's reminding them about exactly how we do that. How do we teach the whole counsel of God? Verse 27, 
you know, there's uncomfortable things about the whole counsel of God. We want to teach the whole counsel. That is, we teach the good stuff and we teach the bad stuff. So we want to talk about the good news. There's bad news to go with it. The good news is we have an inheritance stored up for us in Christ for those found in Christ Jesus. The bad news is all of us are under his judgment and wrath apart from saving faith in Christ. That's, that's how we tell the whole counsel of God. You know the prosperity gospel? God wants you wealthy. God wants you healthy. They, they will not tell you the whole counsel. It's half-truths. Joanna was um, in a food court recently and sat down next to a local woman, an Emirati woman. They began a friendly conversation. Uh, I think strangers are friends Joanna hasn't met yet. (laughs) They're very friendly. They are talking about this and that. And then suddenly, this young Emirati woman says, I've been watching Joel Olstein, the TV preacher. And Joanne, for the for the two or three of you here who have never heard of Joel Olstein, he's he's not really he's kind of he's kind of prosperity gospel light. He's got a TV program and he talks a lot about love, which is a good thing to talk about. But this Emirati woman says to Joanna, "You know, as I've been listening to him, I can tell." That he's not speaking to people that are really suffering. Wow. Would that Christians would be so discerning. It's not the whole counsel of God. People, the world around, can make great livings by not teaching the whole counsel. Well, let's look at the here and now, the protection of the church. Paul wants to make sure that the church is cared for. So he tells them in verse 28, be careful to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul gives the elders a charge. You know, we've spoken much here at Redeemer about the qualifications for being an elder found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1. This is somewhat the elder job description. This is what elders do. And there's a lot to learn here. But I want to give you the top ten points of this passage about elders or eldering. It's important. It's important to know these things. Number one, elders remember to check their own lives in verse 28. Elders need to pay attention to their spiritual lives. That is, they're watchful, they're alert with their own lives. They're not superhuman. They're not super spiritual. Elders have to pay attention to themselves so that they can minister to others. One of the great dangers, one of the great traps of eldering is elders sometimes believe they're above spiritual norms, spiritual requirements. It's not true. Two, elders need 
to remember who made this happen. Verse 28, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not us. God has done this. We're not the ones who formed Redeemer. God formed Redeemer. We were instruments. We were there when it happened. We had the privilege of seeing it come together. What joy there is in that. But God made it happen. Number three, elders care for the church. Verse 28, the charge of Paul is for the leaders to care for the the flock, the church. Their focus is not on themselves, but on the flock. So elders, number one, know who the flock is. Again, I want to emphasize membership. The only way we can care for you is if we know who's the flock. Christians uh, who church shop, I think, would have been as weird to Paul as children who might family shop today. Does that make sense? So, you know, when, 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 people, go, when people go around from church to church and they, they, they just float, they don't, really, they don't really covenant with anyone to be a, a part of a congregation, they'd be like a kid showing up at your family dinner and saying, I'm going to be a part of your family. And uh, what's for dinner? And, I mean, you would probably say, well, we're happy to serve you dinner, we're hospitable, but... Um, you know, you, you, you're a part of another family. You, you should go over there and get fed, right? I mean, is that, is that a good analogy? You see what I mean? That's, what, that's, what, that's, that's how we should see things because that's how Paul saw things, a local congregation, a local fellowship. Now, the way to be a good church member, of course, is to understand what elders are for, to guard the flock. They're not here to set budgets or figure out how to buy the sound system. I mean, they might do that. They might do it really well, but... They keep the church on track with the gospel. They make sure the church and the church's trajectory is guided by biblical principle, by gospel centrality. So they teach, they correct, they make sure the church is going the right way. The primary job of a good elder is the good teaching of the word. That's the main thing. That's not always from the pulpit. Sometimes it's in small groups. Sometimes it's in Friday classes. Sometimes it's just by one-on-one correction and discipleship. But it's the primary job. Good teaching. Fourth, elders remember the cost of a church. Verse 28, they pay careful attention to the model of Jesus who gave his blood. The precious blood of Christ bought the church. And of course, here Paul is pointing to the reason for our sacrifices by pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus made. Jesus said, no servant is above his master, right? And so when he calls elders to care for the church, the elders remember this was bought by the precious blood of Christ. How valuable is that? Fifth, elders fight wolves, verse 29. Elders pay attention, knowing that there are those who will come and tear up the flock from the outside. Wolves are always at the gate of the flock. You know, God loves sheep. Now, anatomically, I'm, I'm, I'm redeeming my father's investment in me as a microbiologist, biology major, something I never used in my life. Biologically, we are most closely related to monkeys. Anatomically, we're most closely related to the primates. Spiritually, we are most closely related to 
sheep. We're sheep. God hates wolves. He hates them. You should remember the passage of Jeremiah. Hey, listen. I know how you can start a cult. Let me tell you how to do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you can make a lot of money this way. All right? Um, act really important. Put yourself above everyone else. Pick a title that sounds big. Uh, I, I, apostle sounds great. Okay, Apostle Bob. Call yourself Apostle. Or Elder Tiffany. Call yourself that. That's, that's, that's helpful. Start a TV ministry so nobody knows how you live. Don't teach all error. That, that's a mistake. Uh, you end up like Jim Jones and you kill all your members. Don't do that. Just teach half-truths. Don't preach the whole council. Make sure you tell people what they want to hear, that they can be rich, that they can have it all and healthy and they'll have heaven on earth. Tell them that. Use the people's money to live the good life yourself. Use their credit cards if they'll let you. That way you can rack up lots and lots of debt that they have to pay off later, long after you're gone. Most of all, preach about rules and regulations for living a better life, not about the gospel of grace. Not how we are saved by his great riches. How it has nothing to do with you earning your way back to God. Some of you are under such bondage, believing that it is rules and regulations that get you to God, and you've been taught that by wolves. It is not true. It is only through the grace of God, through His sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that riches of God come to you by simple faith. All the world rails against that. All the world longs to tell you differently. And finally, to top it all off, be a hired hand. When things get tough in your cult, go to the next job. But if you do that, you should know your life will look just the opposite of Paul. You'll be a wolf. And you will be judged, ultimately, by God. Number six, elders fight bad teaching. In verse 30 and 31. So elders know that there are those on the outside who would attack us. There are people on the inside who will give false teaching. Elders know how to do this. If I could use the image of an egg, it would be helpful here. So an egg is... Dave is smiling at me. But hang on, hang on. I promise this. I'll redeem this. Uh, An egg is a pretty tough thing on the outside. So I remember in elementary school, our teacher would give us an egg on two ends and we would try and crush it, pushing it inward this way. Have you ever done that? You can't, you can't do it. It's really tough. The egg goes this way. Don't try it with a hammer. It doesn't work. But anyhow, so, you know, an egg's... But from the inside, the smallest chick can get out because from the inside, it's weak. That's how the church is. Actually, we're pretty strong from attacks on the outside. We can withstand that. But the inside, see, that's where we face a lot of damage. That's why it's so important for you to be taught well, to understand the gospel of grace, why it's so important for you to teach each other. It's not just the elders, but for you to share with your neighbor about what the Lord has done through his word. Seven, elders hold to the gospel. 
Verse 32. Repetition is important and Paul knows that. We pay attention to the gospel. His grace. Remember the inheritance for those that are saved. Elders keep the big picture in mind. Eric Bancroft is a pastor in Indianapolis, a friend of mine. He wrote recently about how he had an elder when he first started in that church write him a letter, say, I love your preaching. You're so great up front. You're really funny. Could you stop preaching about the gospel so much? You know, it's like Eric mentioned, that elder's no longer with us. Because that elder didn't get it. He didn't understand what the whole point of eldering is about. So Paul concludes his sermon, verse 33 through 35. Two more points of eldering. I coveted no one's silver or gold. We don't covet money or stuff. In verse 33, you can, you can just imagine Paul preaching this and holding out his hands, saying, with these hands, as he preaches to the Ephesian elders, with these hands, he says, Minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In verse 34. Work hard. Care for the weak. Make a living for himself. He remembered the weak. He he remembered what a servant-hearted pastor was. A shepherd. He calls elders through all times and all ages to remember that it's more blessed to give than to receive in verse 35. You know what's ironic about that verse? Just another by the way. That verse is normally used to encourage church congregations to tithe or to give, right? And it's true. Jesus said it. It is true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But Paul's intent here was not to call church congregations to give their tithe. His intent was to call elders, overseers, to remember the pastoral calling is to focus on giving, not receiving. That's the whole point of what he's making here. It's clear. It's so clear that Paul sees much of his leadership having to do with a godly, giving attitude towards money and all kinds of other things. How he is privileged to care for the weak. Tenth, finally, elders pray. He prayed for them. He had said these things. He knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Even though Paul is facing prison, torture, death, he prays for them. He prays for them. And they loved him. At the Muslim Christian Dialogue about two years ago, uh, we have a Christian speaker, Thubidi Anyabwile, who's going to be back this May, and Shabir Ali, a Muslim speaker. Both very gracious people, a very gracious dialogue. Um, But at one point in this discussion, the Muslim speaker is kind of going at Paul. Shabir Ali, he's going at Paul about some things, about what Paul did. What Paul, and maybe you've heard those things too. I've actually thought them as I've read Paul on occasion. I've, I've had to work that through to see his real life shine out in places like this. But at, at some point, the media said, wait a second, wait a second. 
I like Paul. <laughs> it kind of shut down the conversation. It was good. I like Paul. He's a great guy, and I do too. I want to commend him to you as well. You know, all his warnings proved true, not just for himself. We know that. But for Ephesus as well, it came under attack. Jesus rebukes them in the book of Revelation for leaving their first love. I've wandered around that city in Ephesus. I've actually seen the dock where Paul stopped and got off his first footfall in Asia. Talks about that. First footfalls in Asia. I've seen the place where he sold his tents in the, in the square, the city square. I saw the amphitheater where the riots were. And I've wondered, I've wondered what, what happened. It's a Muslim city now. The church is long gone. What will happen to us here at Redeemer? Will you be faithful? Will the elders be faithful? Well, if elders watch over the flock, fight for the flock, by teaching the word of grace, the gospel, if the flock responds, responds as if unto Christ, knowing that the Holy Spirit has put us here, you know what? We're going to be okay. Let me pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at the relevance of your word. Lord, we long for this flock to be protected by elders, to know the word of truth and the gospel, to, to follow you with full sincerity and to proclaim to the world that sacrifices are worth it, that you are worth following, no matter what happens. Lord, these things that we see in Paul's life, we long for us to be like that. And we pray for your Holy Spirit power to allow us to magnify you in such a way that we continue faithfully until we meet you face to face on that day. In Jesus' name, amen.